Hello, and welcome back to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Uh, and in this episode, uh, I'll be looking at Universe, um, which was published in 1940 or 1941 um, in Astounding. And I've been like going through and, and looking at the old Astoundings from, from 1941, and I'm struck by probably about 40%. I, I mean, I have to do a page by page count, but. Um, yeah, I'm thinking like 35 to 40% of that whole year issues are, are Heinlein stories. And most issues have two Heinlein stories. Of course, he, he wrote under different names for, for a lot of those stories, but it's a whole lot, uh, of just bulk. Uh, I actually printed out all the, all of them and it's like the size of a book. So, um, it's, it's something I, I, may have come across when I read read Alec Navala Lee's Astounding, but just how much of the bulk of of that those issues is is staking out Heinlein's claim um, to be like you know, the greatest science fiction writer of the era, setting up so much theme and so many ideas that'd be developed and explored by by later writers. So, um, of course, this is universe is one of his, his most famous stories. It combines with common sense, which I'll look at in a future episode. Uh, I'll probably just look at it in the next episode. I, I won't go try to do this in order. Um, cause we got Methuselah's children. We got, uh, we got, uh, these two stories that, that combine to court to combine orphan in the sky. We have, uh, what's the one with, uh, where did the Japanese take over? Six column, and we got by his bootstraps. So we got a lot of major Heinlein stories too. That's the other striking thing about 1941 is just how many important Heinlein stories were were written or, or published in in 1941. So it's it's an impressive display of of writing at the time. And, and if you think about as much as like Phil Dick wrote in those early years, um, maybe it's it's kind of comparable to that. The difference is Dick published his stories wherever he could sell them, right? But, but Heinlein wrote most of these stories in Astounding. Uh, and that, that doesn't include, I think, like two or three stories that were published in 1941 in other magazines at the time. So one was one rather short novel was published in Super Science Stories in the same year. So, you know, if you add it all together, it is like four or five novels he put together. Um, certainly Orphans in the Sky, Orphans of the Sky, this one, uh, Universe and Common Sense. Methuselah's Children, Sixth Column. These are novels, length, works. Um, and of course, they have been published later as 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 novels or as fix-ups. Uh, I guess uh, Universe wasn't published like as a part one and then Common Sense was a part two. It wasn't published that way, but they clearly were, seemed to have been written around the same time. Um, and, and they do kind of come together as a novel. So later on, most people might pick this up at the stores, Orphans of the Sky, but if you're like me and you have the Science Fiction Hall of Fame volumes, um, you you have uh, just Universe um, on its own, which and then you have to go and dig up Common Sense from somewhere else. 
which I did. Um, thankfully, for, at least for now, those those 1940 and 1841 astounding are all on archive.org. I, I don't know if they're. I think the individual stories aren't public domain, but they're they're up there for now. That's good. Hopefully, they stay there. So, universe. Um, so, if you don't know, this story is uh, about a generation ship that, uh, and and in which the people forget they're on a generation ship. There's a, a major political crisis, and and they essentially just have a collective forgetting over several generations in which they no longer know they're on a generation ship. So they think the universe, entire universe is just the ship, but they have the texts, they have the documents, they have uh, the remnants of the original purpose of the ship. Not all of them, a lot have been locked away um, somewhere else, but they have enough that they have to kind of, uh, that it becomes sort of a religion. So the trip that they're heading to, Alpha Centauri, wherever they're going, is becomes metaphorized as like the journey of life and the journey of this race and the species. Uh, and the like the founder of the expedition, their first captain becomes like a, a Jesus figure or a prophet type of figure. Even a divine figure. Um, you know, even the laws of nature uh, get allegorized all allegorized um, and it's really interesting what happens here like for instance the gravitational the, the law of, of universal gravitation you know the gravitational constant times the two masses over distance squared that is the 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 the, the our main character Hugh is told you can't look at this as a as a you can't read this literally you got to read it as, as a metaphor for human relations, as, as uh, you know, that we as we as we get away from someone, as we don't have them in our life anymore, love dissipates. So it's, it's actually the, the, the law of universal gravitation is actually just a metaphor for for relationships. And that's what happens to a lot of of, of it. It just becomes part of culture, it becomes kind of part of myth. So it's not 100 percent. They forget. They just reinterpret. They reimagine things. So I think there's some interesting commentary here on how we read our own ancient texts and our own uh, early knowledge is we, we impose meaning on it from our own perspective, our own point of view. And we we get it wrong often. Right. Like uh, you read the Bible, you pick it up and you say, well, this must be a metaphor for something. And we do it to validate our own presumptions and and beliefs about things instead of actually taking it for what it would have been in its historical context which is almost impossible to do because we do live in this time right where we're in a sense we, we live in a moment like the ship where time sort of does get flattened we're, we're sort of at the end of history and our characters in the start of universe are essentially at the end of history and they don't by and large don't escape it that's one thing when you get to the end of common sense a few of our characters escape it a handful but by and large, this society cannot, the Copernican revolution here fails. That's one thing I, you know, I've read Universe several times. I've only read Common Sense one time before. And I didn't really pay that much attention to it. Um, but reading it carefully this time, and I'll, I'll get to this more next, it's really about the failure of this, of this Copernican revolution. Right, which in that sense is not fully a metaphor for the scientific revolution. What that it feels like when you read Universe, it feels like we are seeing an allegory for Galileo, uh, or 
just generally the scientific revolution, the, 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 the transforming of how we see our place in the universe and, the, and our own position in it. And then the reaction to that by the people in power who have something to lose by revisioning, uh, reimagining of what that place is. Um, but I think what's most kind of troubling about common sense is the, the ultimate failure of it. Um, that basically you have like a civil war that breaks out and yeah, a few people get away. Heinlein works in the happy ending, but it's not that happy. It's easy to imagine that the, the survivors of this ship are not going to make it on this other planet. I mean, there's no reason. If you come back in a thousand years, what is it going to be? Is there going to be a whole civilization there? Is it going to be a happy ending like that? Or is this ultimately really is a failed expedition? Like the, 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 the generation ship lost its way generations before the events of the story. And yeah, a few people get to escape, but they're, they're essentially like, uh, I don't know. They're, they're, there are point of view characters, but they're not the, the, the civilization as a whole. The civilization kind of goes on in, a, in its own pathetic way, unable to deal with what it what it is, and it's it's largely political reaction that wins out at the end. But anyways, universe ends ends a bit more optimistically. Um, where we, we kind of end with the Galileo moment at, at the end of this, this first half. Um, now, this is loosely connected to the future history uh, narration, um, you know, that kind of world building that Heinlein was, going, was, was using, kind of connecting characters and connecting storylines. Um, but they're really, really loosely connected. By and large, I think these, these there's not much value you can get out of like looking at these together. I guess there's some characters that... that come back some like with the the like some of the like the religious uh theocracy stuff uh and um coventry all those stories they kind of go together okay but but the larger they can be looked at on their own this one is really really loosely connected i think there's just a reference to this ship going off in some other story um but Obviously, these people have no connection. It's it's centuries, centuries later. It's way, way in the future. Um, so that's all I'll say about that. Um, so what kind of civilization do we have on the, the ship? It's largely a, a religious uh, agricultural society, um, but it's a little bit different than, than like agricultural societies in our own history in which there's kind of a concept of growth and expansion uh, here it's much more stability is the goal is the value because it has to be all energy has to be recycled so there is more of a of an ethic of sustainability so when you die your your body's recycled your energy recycled anything that's not immediately useful gets uh, converted into into energy it, you have kind of a closed system and i think uh like a later writer would maybe focus more on the ecology of the soul because i think there's a there's this you know Heinlein's not particularly interested in like the calculus of this all because you know how the second law of thermodynamics plays out here they must be getting some kind of energy from the outside uh it's not really explained how that's done or if it's just like some nuclear power i suppose there has to be some source creating energy because you can't have a totally um, 
sustainable energy source, you always have losses of efficiency, right? That's my understanding of the second law of thermodynamics, but that's okay. Um, it does make for um, some interesting cultural aspects of the story, like the going to the converter, right? Now, of course, death has two kind of descriptions. One is going to the converter, because when you die, you are con you're converted into energy, but also going on the, the journey, going on the trip, which is kind of the metaphor for our whole existence, right? Um, but that gets transformed into, into myth, into into religion essentially um now early on in the story we are given the um so we have all these ignorant essentially ignorant farmers um and we have two different sort of civilizations on the ship the muties and the the normies i guess now as we learn later on the muties are a product of of exposure to outside radiation so that may be one explanation about where energy is is coming from to sustain this this system but it's also creating the generations of of mutants who also become just like uh, equivalent to like uh, in a religious outsider group uh, a foil to the civil the main civilization an enemy a potential enemy a threat uh, it has various ideological roles for for the, the society we have in fact uh so we get this kind of creed at the beginning uh where our main character hugh is basically being educated now eventually he's going to be sort of promoted into the realm of the scientists which is essentially the priest class of on the ship anyways it's, it's worth glancing at uh Heinlein writes in the beginning there was jordan thinking his lonely thoughts alone in the beginning there was darkness formless dead and man unknown out of the loneliness came a longing out of that longing came a vision out of the dream there came a planning all that plan that came to decision jordan's hand was lifted and the ship was born mile after mile of smug snug compartments tank by tank for the golden corn ladder and passage door and locker fit for the needs of the yet unborn he looked on his works and found it pleasing, met for a race that was yet to be born. He thought of man. Man came into being, checked his thoughts, and searched for a key. Man untamed would shame his maker. Man unruled would spoil the plan. So Jordan made the regulations, orders to each single man. So there's like a Genesis is in here, the the kind of from creation to the law, that, that story. We uh, have... In kind of creation for man, we also have a bit of like John here with uh, in the beginning was like the word, like we're created out of essentially God's mind. Um, going on, uh, the this kind of creed says to each a task and to each a station serving a purpose beyond their ken, some to speak, some to listen, others come to the ranks of men. Crew he created to work at their station, scientists to guide the plan. Over them all he created a captain, made him judge of the race of man. Thus it was in the golden age. End quote. So what's fascinating about this is that it's essentially uh, justifying the hierarchy that would be required on a ship, right? Everyone has a role. There's a captain. There's officers. There, there's kind of a naval hierarchy. We don't quite know what that system would have been, but we presume there would have been hierarchies. And everyone would have a job. Everyone would have an important task to do on the generation ship and that just becomes structured into the law of the society it becomes part of the myth uh it becomes institutionalized in 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 the religion um now we're also told that there's a religion which a rebellion i mean which is a mutiny that uh kind of gets understood 
and it's connected to the mutes, muties, the mutants um, by them. But that's it. So we have a fall from grace that comes from this this mutiny. And as we learn later on, this mutiny is what kind of begins the process of misremembering the past. As the texts, the actual records of the ship get hidden away, protected, uh, and the, the ship becomes divided. So in the muti areas is where the evidence of like the command bridge and stuff, the evidence that the ship is in space and there's a world outside of the ship is is delegated it ends up in the muti territory so the people where the farms are um that these capsules where these hydroponic farms are is where the normies um, dwell so um anyway it's not um that kind of sets up what we have here of of essentially uh a mixing up of, of science and religion in really interesting ways. I, I think the twisting of the law of gravitation, making it not uh, something about metaphysical truths that derived out through through the scientific method and observations and experiments and things like that, but rather a moral lesson about how we interact with each other, right? Um, which. I don't know. It's like it's almost like I, it's something that I sometimes I kind of long for is we do have this a culture where we kind of need this lesson, right, where you need to sustain your relationships. You need to rebuild this closeness. It would be nice if more of us thought about the law of universal gravitation in moral and ethical terms. Right. But we're so distant from that. There's there's no ethical grounding in our in our society anymore. We're just uh, individuated. Uh, mediating through through screens um, that that's kind of lost but here you have a community that's fairly well put together by those by those scientific laws and scientific understanding just being mutated through the years right it's uh, it caught me thinking of scholasticism actually where you have like aristotle and and the ancient greeks and their concept of science and their concept of of truth and then when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, right? And you have the ruling class of the Roman Empire pushing Christianity. They, of course, don't forget the Greek and Roman heritage. It's not gone entirely. That philosophical tradition is still there and it gets kind of reworked in religious ways. So Platonism kind of gets reworked into Neoplatonism, which is much more religious and much more concerned about things like well, the, the origins of evil. And you got Plotinus talking about these things. And... And of course, you've got the Christians who gravitate towards both Aristotle and Plato in various ways. There are various functions for it. So in the late antiquity, you kind of have a unity of the two. And then in the scholastic era, Aristotle is sort of like revived and reimagined. But it's reimagined through that Christian lens, right? So that's what the scholastics try to do. They take these Aristotelian teachings and they, they use it to support to justify, to argue for faith, for religious belief, right? So, and then that's the debate in the Middle Ages, like, do we need the Greeks? Do we need the ancients at all? Isn't faith enough? And you have Aquinas and the other scholastics, you know, debating and interested in Aristotle, interested in the ancient Greeks, but they're looking at it through such a different worldview than the people in the ancient world would have read those same texts, or even in the, the late antiquity, that it gets understood in different ways. So that kind of thing is going on here, I think. Um, and here, the story we get is the reinterpretation of, of the gravitational law. But um, obviously, that's running through the whole thing. 
Um, and even we're, we're told like, like this, the realists are the ones who believe the ideology of, of, well, I guess you have the realists and the skeptics there. You have the people who are much more interested in the ideology and the tradition. I guess that, yeah, I, I turned it around here. But then you have the skeptics who Hoyland, Hugh Hoyland calls the realists, who are the people who are much more technocratic. They're not atheists. They're not rejecting the view. They just don't find it as relevant. They don't find the story of the ship, the, the, the ethical guidelines as interesting as just the day-to-day -day workings of their the society, right? They have to keep the balance sheets. There's kind of a Malthusian logic here. And here Malthus actually makes sense because you do have a closed system and obviously limited resources. Um, so in that sense, even the muties have to be kind of become part of the plan, right? But the, the technocratic people that remain are, are more the skeptics. Now, all that's really left in the story, once you set up the context, is to disrupt it in, in a way. And the way it's done is... Uh, Hugh Hoyland is taken by the Muties. He's, he's kidnapped by the Muties. And our, our kind of point of view character into Mutie civilization is Joe Jim Gregory, who is a two-headed mutant uh, who has, you know, two, two different personalities that kind of interact. They can play chess with each other. Two different consciousnesses in the same body. Just basically like a Siamese twin. Um, there's also uh, Bobo, who is, is a little more of a comical figure. He's kind of the dumb Muties. He's more of a a brutish like a like a like an enforcer for for the muties um and the muties have been presented as a threat in fact they're even justified as being an essential part of this society because they they keep people on on track they keep people to follow the rules it has to be part of jordan's plan part of essentially god's plan to have the outsider there someone to test them right like kind of like Israel is being tested by these other tribes around them by by Yahweh. It's, it's sort of like that. Um, and Hugh gets instead of being killed by the Muties, he's essentially made a slave. Um, and and then they kind of debate amongst themselves. Joe Jim debates amongst himself. Like, do we bring Hugh Hoyland into the truth that's there? Do we expose him to knowledge? Um, and Joe and Jim debate this, and it's Joe who says, the trouble with the youngsters is that you can't understand a thing right off. You think it can't be true. The trouble with your elders is anything they didn't understand, they reinterpreted to mean something else, and then thought they understood it. None of you have tried believing clear words on the way they were written and tried to understand them on that basis. Oh no, you're all too bloody smart for that. If you can't see it right off, it ain't so. It must mean something different. And quote, so he's saying it doesn't matter which generation you are, you're going to interpret the text wrong because you're not seeing them as they really are. It's almost impossible. Joe Jim's asking for an impossible task of people here. And he's a, he kind of he's got some ennui about it because it's true. You're always if without some kind of outside information that forces you to interpret things different, you're going to it's going to come through your own mind. Right? And and that's why so often things we read things we watch, things we consume, just serve to validate ourselves. Right? We see ourselves in what we watch, in our media, in our in the characters we watch, and it, and it, it distances us from the author. And that's not entirely a bad thing, but it's not really that good either. 
in the sense that it, it does break us away from the truth. Now, what's it going to take to to get people to read things essentially literally? Joe's saying we need to do a more literal reading of these of these ancient texts. So they say, um, basically, we need to take him to show him the universe as it really is. So they the Muties take Hugh Hoyland to essentially it's like the bridge, I think, to the, you know, to where he can look outside. And they say, see, look out, look out the window. That's all it takes. Why there's no windows elsewhere on the ship, I'm not sure. But they take him to essentially to the window and say, look out there, see the stars and see they move. It's because we're moving, like right? we are moving. That's, of course, why Galileo's key. In fact, we have more of a Galileo than a Copernicus. Um, it's not Copernicus. He just looked at the models and said, yeah, this Ptolemaic model is a little clumsy. You know, Occam's razor says it's something simpler. If we put the sun in the center, we don't need the epicycles. It's simpler. It makes more sense. But he doesn't, Copernicus never had to look out of the sky to do that. He just looked at the book and said, well, that's really weird. Is there a better way to do it? Maybe this is better. He doesn't really have any evidence to back it up, right? It wouldn't be till Brahe and Kepler and those people that we get a the evidence to back up heliocentricity. And of course, Galileo is convinced of it, convinced of heliocentricity through the telescope, through observing. So Hugh Hoyland and the Muties here are closer to Galileo in that they're basing their transformed worldview on observations and evidence that's out there in the world. So that's that's the revolution in in Hugh's mind. Now Joe Jim, another Muties. Who, who seem to know this and have already sort of suffered the loss of amazement. That's the theme. And it's something that um, Hugh Hoyland feels almost immediately when he looks out the window. He immediately feels regret. That he's never going to have to feel that again. It's a once in a, in, a, in a century or once in a millennium moment in which it's like our entire worldview has been broken up. It's like when I teach the scientific revolution, it's one of the hardest things to get across to students is because they all grow up being told that the sun is the center, right? They, they deny their eyes. Because if you just look at it with your eyes, it looks like the earth is the center of the universe, right? They just accept what they're taught. So there's nothing surprising or amazing or beautiful about coming to the conclusion that something else is true, right? That's why you almost have to kind of start with the, the Ptolemaic model and then sh like realize why it's wrong actually go through the calculations yourself, actually map it out and, and, and to have that wonder. And maybe some people are still capable of feeling that, but you're never going to feel like Galileo did or how Brahe did or Kepler or those or Newton or any of these people who actually went from a position of like ignorance about these things to, to knowledge. Maybe a religious experience is the closest we can get now to this. Um, Maybe, maybe that's what conspiracy theories are about. Back to conspiracy theories, which I talked about in other episodes of, the, of this podcast and, and, and various times. Is, is it, it's like it's our moment where we can say, ah, I see it differently now. I understand it all. It's, 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 it's we're longing for that to, to unlock that door and open up that, like that, you know, open up that door to knowledge that's been that, that, can change our whole world or put everything together in, in a new amazing way. Unfortunately, that's just like, it's, it's not true. It's like when, with conspiracy theory, it's just, uh, it's kind of vapid. 
right? Because there's just our world, right? We're we're back kind of in that, that world where there's just like that flatness. There, there's there's nothing. There's no control room we can go to and see like an alternative perspective anymore. We're just kind of trapped in the Black Iron Prison. Philip Dick's Black Iron Prison, unfortunately. Well, anyways, back to the story. So Hugh Hoyland goes back to, uh, he's been gone for months. He goes back. Things have changed. People thought he was dead, killed by the muties. But he comes back and, and he doesn't really have his job anymore. And he starts preaching right away, thinking this is his big mistake, is he thinks, oh, everyone else, would, if I just say this is the way it is, everyone will buy it. Right, everyone will agree with me. So he's like, uh, like Galileo, I guess, when he published uh, his book. He's just like, oh, everyone's going to accept it without any trouble. But then he immediately bumps up against the Inquisition, the reality of of the system, of the state, of the institution, of the culture, religion, whatever, all of it together. And in a sense, they're right. I, I have to say that. I, I think. It's so tragic system. I mean, there is that Malthusian logic in at play at universe because of the second law of thermodynamics and the brutal logic of of any instability in that world would be devastating. Right? There's no room for growth. There's no room for expansion, which means there really can't be any room for for a new perspective because everything needs to be stable. Right? Like Philip Dick's first story, stability. It's like the the, cru the crucialness of that because anything breaking it up is is potentially quite devastating. And and Hugh Hoyland never thinks about that. He just kind of jumps in with both feet, pushing his his Copernic his Copernican revolution. And, and, and he he uses actually the language of Galileo at the end during his trial, where he says like, "Yet it moves." Right? It's like Heinlein really wants us to think about Galileo here. Um, which is fine. It's a little bit trite. It's a little obvious, I suppose. Anyone who studied the scientific revolution knows that. Quote, uh, the way it goes is when Galileo recanted to the church and went under house arrest, he said under his breath, and yet it moves. I doubt that was true, but, um, you know, that's the way the story goes. Because you have to have Galileo, that, that's the issue. Like, Galileo recanted his beliefs for good reasons, right? Because Bruno was killed a few years earlier for similar ideas he still had work to do he still had work to publish so that was the only way he could get he could survive to publish again which he did do and and keep his life together right the universities are all controlled by the church it's not like he can just become a farmer or something right i guess he could have like bit the bullet and been burned at the stake or whatever but most of us aren't going to make that choice and Hugh does. I mean, Hugh essentially is told, you're going to the converter for these beliefs. You, you, you can't escape it because it's it's too disruptive. Um, so that's what happens. So the, the climax of universe is his Galileo moment where he's put them to death. He says, you're going to be sent to the converter. And he says, all right, but I'll have my last say. It, you know, nevertheless, it still moves. And he's talking about the ship there. Same way Galileo is talking about the earth, apparently in the apocryphal story so all that's really left in the story then is the plan for the escape uh is the muties you know organize and get together and decide to free hugh hoyland um and 
they proceed to do that. And that's that's how universe ends. So the story sort of ends hopeful with uh, if this was the only story, I think it's fine. You don't need common sense to to get a lot out of this story. But what I like about common sense, and I'll talk about this in the next episode, I suppose, is is it fails. The revolution goes forth and eventually political interests revert back to the norm. Right. The politics of the system can't allow uh, this much disruption. So the only thing you can do is is maybe a few can escape and finish the trip. Right. Fulfill the ethical obligations of the of of the religion. And I guess that's the last thing I want to say. It's one thing I noticed when I was reading it is even though Hugh Hoyland is is a heretic in a way, he's also the most committed to the actual religion because he's like the religion says we're on this journey right we're on a ship and this ship has a journey has a destination and i'm saying let's actually do it let's actually fulfill this right and i think that's the problem of any religion is if you actually fulfill the vision it's there's no point for it anymore right that's that's why you need these kind of linear time religions that's why it's so popular right you never actually have to have jesus come back as long as he's going to come back at some point Right. It's the same with the journey. You don't never ever need a destination because as long as it's just out there, you know, you you can get there. This is the difference with the cult. The cult that says like on Thursday, a comet's gonna come by and carry our souls into space. If the comet doesn't come and do that, you know, then you have to drink the Kool-Aid at that point, right? Because there's there's no purpose to your beliefs if when the deadline comes. So the most successful religions either have eternal return, like like the Hindus and the Buddhists, where we're never actually can get off the ride, or you just keep pushing back the date. You may think it's coming, but but if it doesn't come now, it'll come later, come after I'm dead. That's all fine. Once I'm dead, I'll, I'll be reborn or whatever. But uh, Hugh Hoyland, that's maybe the more radical thing about it, is he's saying this actually journey has, does have an end, and we can see it. It's that star out there, and we can get there. So anyways, um, a great story, a fun story. I, I do think it's uh, it can be read separately from Common Sense, um, like I'm doing. I think it stands up on its own. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff in this one. So um, yeah, I think that's all I want to say about, about Universe. Uh, I will see you next time when I finish up this story with my thoughts about Common Sense. Uh, in the meantime, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And um, I'll see you next time with the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Thanks for, for listening. Mm-hmm.